Welcome to the Color and Chaos Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. My name is Jonah Fair, and I'm coming to you from Macomb, Michigan. It's such an honor that you are tuning in this week. No matter where this podcast finds you, whether you are listening to this or you are watching this, the fact is, is that you are here, and I'm a firm believer that it's not by accident that we are here today. I find that within me, there's this knee-jerk reaction to want to do nothing else but run away from that which causes pain, discomfort, or challenge. But yet, I know when I look back over my life, it's in the moments of pain, difficulty, and challenge. Those are the moments that I grow the most as a person and also grow the most in my relationship with my creator, savior, and sustainer. And so the premise of this podcast is that in the chaos, there is a color that we can find through it when instead of running away from it, we lean into it, seeking our creator, savior, and sustainer with a heart crying out saying, God, help me see more of you in this chaos. No matter where this finds you, know that you are not alone. You are not alone. So here, let's pray. Lord God, you know exactly what we are going through in our life. You know exactly what we're going through in our heart and our head. But Lord, you care about each and every thought, each and every emotion, each and every feeling that we have right now, Lord, you care about it all. And you are intimately involved in our life, whether we acknowledge you or not. And so, Jesus, we just ask right now that you will have your will and way within our hearts, within our minds. Remind us of who you are and whose we are, and we are yours. Help us be able to see you maybe for the first time today. Lord, help us be able to acknowledge you and, and have even more of an awe and a reverence for you, knowing that you gave it all in order to be able to be one with us and we just thank you for that, Jesus. And we give this time to whatever you want to do through your spirit. And it's in your name we pray and we surrender, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Recently, I've had the opportunity to fly a lot more than I normally ever would. And last episode, if you watched or listened to that episode, then I talked about a story from one of the last times that I flew and something that really stood out to me about the grace of God. And this last week, I had an opportunity to fly again, and I found myself, again, just in awe of the fact that we were flying in the air. And specifically, there was a moment when it was around midnight, and we were about to land in the city of Philadelphia. And we were about to land in the city, and I'm looking out my window. I wasn't right near the window, so I only had like a little minimal view of the city of Philadelphia and the city, if you've ever seen it aerially, it's it's massive, it's big, it spreads out and then also has a skyline. And as the plane is kind of heading into the skyline, it kind of turned a little bit on its right side and that was the side that I was sitting. And so I had this moment to kind of see from a aerial view as if I was like looking down upon the streets, I was able to see as close as I could in this airplane see just these rows upon rows upon rows of just lights that are just lighting up these different streets and neighborhoods and cities and skylines. And I'm just seeing these rows upon rows of lights. And as I was looking upon these rows and rows of light, at the best of my ability with the eyesight that I have from the view that I was looking down upon these lights, I was just hit with the reality 
that each and every one of these lights represents something. Each and every light has a purpose. Whatever the reason behind the lights that I was looking at as I was like airily looking at the streets of Philadelphia, so far up, those lights that illuminate a big area when you're down on ground level, from afar, all it is is like a little speck of light. And I was just thinking about the whole reality that even though from a distance that light looks so small, that light exists. I couldn't help but think how much more does our creator, savior, and sustainer see us even in the moments when we may either feel really big and on top of the world or the moments that we feel so small and lost in a sea of strangers, in a sea of souls. Personally, I find that it's in the moments where I feel so small, like I'm a little small speck of light. Those are the moments where I seek our God the most. And in the moments when I feel like I'm, I'm larger than life or I have it all together, those are the moments where I close my heart off to the light of the world. I've been reading recently, just in my quiet time, I've been reading through First and Second Chronicles. And then for those that are not familiar with these books within the Bible, First Chronicles kind of details different stories and just history of King David. But within the book of Chronicles, you see these events that you typically don't see within the other accounts of King David or his son who takes the throne after his dad, Solomon. And you see these accounts that are just very profound. And specifically, there's this account that stood out to me, and it was in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it details a moment where David, not trusting the Lord and leaning on what the Lord said, that God himself would provide as David seeks after God's heart, David takes it upon his own hands to try to number his troops in order to give a security and a sense of peace upon the king. And so as David makes this blunder and he trusts in his own understanding instead of leaning upon what the Lord said, there's a consequence that happens. And basically the Lord says, David, because you've done this, I'm going to give you three options as your consequence. And he goes through these different consequences, and two of these consequences is either he would be handed over to his enemies or that there would be a plague. And within First Chronicles chapter 21, it goes down in verse 13 to David giving an answer to the Lord saying, okay, this is what I rather prefer for my act of disobedience to you. And in verse 13, this is what David says, I am in a desperate situation, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. Do not let me fall into human hands. Verse 14 tells the story as this. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 people died as a result. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But just as the angel was preparing to destroy it, the Lord relented and said to the death angel, Stop, that is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of a person named Ariannah. And as he's standing there at the floor of this citizen of Israel, it says this in verse 16, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his sword drawn reaching out over Jerusalem. So David and the leaders of Israel put on burlap to show their deep distress, and they fell face down on the ground. 
Verse 17, and David said to God, I am the one who called for the census. I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. But these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, let your anger fall against me and my family, but do not destroy your people. Verse 18, it says this, Then the angel of the Lord told this man to instruct David to go up and build an altar to the Lord at the threshing floor of Aranah. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. And Uriah, who was busy threshing wheat at the time, turned and saw the angel there. His four sons who were with him ran away and hid. When Uriah saw David approaching, he left his threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. David said, let me buy this threshing floor from you at its full price, and then I will build an altar to the Lord there so he will stop the plague. In this moment, David sees this powerful figure of death, an angel of death hovering over Jerusalem, and David and the rest of the leaders that were around him fall face down in reverence, saying, God, please don't do this. Don't destroy us. Forgive me. Help me. I'm the one that did this wrong thing. Don't let innocent people suffer because of my wrongdoing. Build an altar to me. So David goes to this man named Urana. And he says, look, I will buy this area, this land. I will buy this land from you. And Rana, of course, in awe of what's going on, he says, no, you can just have it. I give it all to you, my king. But then David replies in verse 24, and he says this, but King David replies to Rana, no, I insist on buying it for full price. I will not take what is yours and give it to the Lord. I will not present burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David gave Uriah 600 pieces of gold in payment for the threshing floor. In this story, what I find so fascinating is the awe and the reverence upon David. David has his moment of humility when he sees something outside of the earthly realm. He sees a death angel right over his own city. And this angel is about to destroy the city. David, the only response that he has is awe and, and repentance. He says, God, forgive me. Help me. I'm the one that did this. I'm the one that's guilty. Let all the consequences that you're about to put upon my city, the city that you've called me to govern, this, this nation, put it upon me and my family. Because God, I'm the one that did wrong. And the only response that David could muster up in that moment is getting on his knees in holy reverence is saying, my God, forgive me, forgive me. I find it fascinating that David had an opportunity to get this, this land for free. But David, in his repentance, he said, no, 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 this needs to cost me something. That there's 70,000 people that have died as a result of my sin. And the least that I can do is give up some of my resources in order to pay for this land, in order for you to not have to suffer anymore as well. And so David buys this land, he builds an altar, the Lord relents, and you see how this act of just repentance and also this act of reverence thwarts destruction. As I'm looking out over the plain, I'm looking down on all of these little lights, these, these lights that are not little from ground level, but from my perspective, they seem so little. I couldn't help but just have a awe in the sense that each light represents something. And each light 
is not ignored by our God. Sometimes when we're looking from an aerial view upon the scripture, or even looking at an aerial view upon God himself as he's revealed in the scripture, sometimes we can think a lot smaller of the circumstances and the situations and God himself that we are reading about. From 30,000 feet up, the lights look so small in the city of Philadelphia. As I'm looking almost at like a 90 degree view down upon the streets, it looked so small, but I knew, I knew that even though it looked so small, that those lights were not small. And in this situation, it's easy to skim over this and just be like, whoa, that was a crazy story. I don't know how true that is. He's talking about death angels and talking about destruction and all this other stuff. That doesn't really make sense to me. So I'm just going to skim through it. But in reality, no, this is a real life situation. God in his justice upon our sin and depravity, there's a consequence for transgression. If we sinned against another person or another person sinned against us, when we're standing before a judge, a good judge would give us a just judgment. Now, in our hearts, we desire mercy. We desire grace. But the judge, his job is to appoint justice and for justice to be served. Even though sometimes when we look at our sin from 30,000 feet up, it looks so small, or we look at the scripture or situations or God himself and it looks so small, it's not small, it's big. Even sometimes when we look at ourselves and when we look at ourselves through the lens of our failure or how insignificant that we feel, we're not as small as we may be feeling to our God, but he sees us through eyes that we can't comprehend, through a love and a compassion, a justice, a mercy, and a truth that goes so far beyond what our perspective can ever perceive from down here. And in this situation, you see how David, he responds quickly when he knows that there's a lot to lose. I found it interesting that the same plot of land that David responded in reverence and repentance and bought in order to build an altar for God, that the same plot of land later on you see to be where David builds a temple for God. And so we see all through the story of David, how God puts upon David's heart this desire to build a earthly temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Ark of the Covenant during this time was a ark that held the commandments of Moses that he chiseled upon tablets that we read about in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And we read about the story of Moses and how God, as he called his people out of Israel into the land that now David is in, the promised land, the land that used to be Canaan and now is Israel and it's where the Jews dwell. The same God that called Moses to chisel upon tablets the commandments, the laws, in order for the Jews to live holy and reverent and set apart for God, that the same ark that held those 10 commandments that was considered holy by the Jews, that David desires to build a temple to house the same ark that holds those commandments. And so David has this moment, and we read about in the scripture, where he says, hey, God, I have a palace to dwell in, but you have no place to dwell. 
And so David desires to build this temple for the Lord. But the problem is God tells David that you won't be the one to build this temple. Instead, one of your sons will build this temple because you yourself, you've shed a lot of blood. And so you're not the right one to build a place for my presence to dwell on earth but instead one of your sons will. And so later on in First Chronicles, after this story we just heard about the death angel and David buying this plot of land, that same plot of land is the temple that later on is getting built upon in the nation of Israel. And in First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9, David is given instructions to his son who's about to take over the throne of Israel. And he gives Solomon these instructions in verse 9. And Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So take this seriously. The Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. We see throughout the life of David, many high highs and many low lows, but you see that in the low lows, those were the moments where David understood the magnitude of who his creator, savior, and sustainer was. And so he's given instructions to his son towards the end of his own life. And he's saying, Solomon learned to have this intimate relationship with your creator, savior, sustainer. Take this seriously. The Lord has designed and created you for a plan and a purpose that goes so far beyond anything you could do on your own. Lean into the Lord, Solomon. He has a plan for you, not only to build a temple, but he has a plan for your life. And so as you go through the rest of Chronicles and it goes into 2 Chronicles, you see Solomon follow the instructions of his dad, David, to build this earthly temple in order for the Lord to be able to dwell, his presence to dwell in a place, an environment where people can go and give sacrifices as an atonement for their hostility and their sin against a holy, righteous God. And you see in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, it says this in verse 1, So Solomon finished all the works of the temple of the Lord. And then it goes down in verse 6 and says there, before the ark, King Solomon, the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one can keep count. Sometimes when we're looking from a 30,000 foot view upon ancient Israel and the sacrificial system that is found in the Old Testament, sometimes we can just look at it as weird and not really lean into it in the reality that this is a serious deal, that every sacrifice of an innocent animal that had to die was because that our sins to a holy God, there has to be payment. There has to be payment in order for there to be justice to be served. There was this constant system at work of a sacrificial system to pay the price for our sin. And so David gives Solomon the instructions to build a temple in the same plot of land that David himself encountered the Lord in a powerful way and also encountered the mercy of the Lord in a powerful way. Solomon's on this holy land he just got done building the altar and it says that him and the rest of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one can keep count. So in chapter six, we see Solomon and he built this altar outside of the temple 
And the whole nation of Israel is gathered around this altar. And Solomon stands up on the same altar that would be giving all of these sacrifices for years and years and years and generations to come to pay the price for our sin. We can never fully pay, but that we were just caught in this just system of just crying out to God saying, God, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Forgive me, forgive me. So Solomon himself stands on this altar and he goes on to say this in verse 14. It says he lifts his hands towards heaven. And he prays this, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no one like you in all of heaven and earth. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. But then he goes on to verse 18 and he has this sobering moment where he says this, God, will you really live on earth among your people? Why even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less than this temple I have built. Nevertheless, listen to my prayer and my plea. O Lord, my God, hear the cry and prayer that your servant is making to you. May you watch over this temple day and night, this place where you have said that you will put your name. Then he goes on to the end of verse 21. He says, yes, hear us from heaven where you live and where you hear, forgive. Solomon in this moment, he can't say anything else but just say, God, I can't fully wrap my head around how the heavens can't even contain you, but yet you're going to live among us. You're going to make your presence known among us. And he goes on to pray in verse 27. He says, Lord, teach them, teach us to follow the right path. Teach us to follow the right path. And it says this in chapter 7, Verse one, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Verse two, the priest could not even enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshiped by praising the Lord saying, he is good. His faithful love endures forever. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says this, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? And there's many other passages, for instance, Romans 6, 16. Do you not know when you offer yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? In Romans 8, verse 9, you, however, control not by the flesh, but by the spirit. And if the spirit of God lives in you, then anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong in Christ. Paul, in this verse and many other verses, what he's saying is that through Jesus, Jesus was the sacrifice that none of those sheep, that none of those cattle, that none of any offering that we could bring to our God could ever pay the price for our sin and our rebellion towards a holy God. But Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. And through accepting the gift of the forgiveness of Christ that is given through grace, through Christ to you and to me, by accepting the gift of forgiveness of Christ and becoming alive through laying down our lives as offerings before our God for him to use us for his plan and purpose, that when we do that, that no longer do we have to go to a temple in order to approach our God or to give a penance for our sins, but we approach our God through the blood of Jesus and through his spirit that lives in each and every person who has asked Jesus 
asked Jesus to forgive them and accepted that forgiveness that he has given us freely through the blood, the costly blood on the cross. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we die to our sin, we are buried in our flesh, and we become alive through the Spirit of God within us. And so Paul is saying, no longer do we look to the temple in order to see our God, but we look to Jesus, and Jesus makes us living temple for our God. And so as I'm reading about all this temple and the, and the sacrificial system and, and Solomon, and he's saying, you know, how can you dwell among us? I think about how in that moment, Solomon knows in his wisdom that this temple can't contain you, that you're so much bigger, but God, you got to do something because if this temple can't contain you and the heavens can't contain you, what are you going to do when you dwell among us? Solomon was looking forward to the gift of Christ. And likewise, that through Christ, you are a walking, living temple for our God. That when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are saying, look, I know, I know that I am nothing. I am nothing in the speck of all of your infinite love, mercy, justice, truth, that I am sick in my sin. But yet, God, you are so much bigger. And Lord, I surrender to all that you are for you to use me for your plan and purpose. Because at the end of the day, Lord, I have nothing else to offer but my life. I have nothing else to offer. Passages such as Psalms 139 touches on this whole idea that our God sees us and he knows us. And in verse one, he starts off by just saying this, oh Lord, you know my heart and you know everything about me. As I was looking from so far up down upon the city of Philadelphia and those each and every light, I was overwhelmed. What are you telling me that each light has a story, that each house, each, each street lamp, each car driving, that there is this billions of people upon the world There's so many people, but yet our God knows us and he cares about each and everything going on in our life, in our heart, in our mind. That this pale blue dot that holds all of life as we know it, that God, even this this pale blue dot does not contain just the, the awe of your love for us. God, even though I can't fully comprehend, I can't see myself through your eyes, And Lord, I struggle to see other people through your eyes. And even though we feel like so small specks of light in the scope of the universe, the the infinite galaxies that we're still exploring and discovering, yet God, you know me by name and you care, you care. On the cross, Jesus looked upon those that were mocking and spitting upon him as he's bleeding out, ripped flesh, naked. And he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And in that moment, he saw you and me. The love of God cannot be contained in my words, upon the scriptures. And even the disciple John says that in in his book of John. He says, look, at the very end of his book, he says, look, if, if I would write all about Christ, there wouldn't even be enough books on this planet to hold 
who he is and all that he did and does. And so the magnitude is massive, yet God zooms in and he sees every light, every light, every person. He sees every potential. And you are not a lost cause, even though you may feel so small. Recently, there was a launch upon space of three different individuals and they paid money in order to go into space. And one of the individuals was an actor, William Shatner, and he's famous for his role upon Star Trek. And many of you listening or watching, you may know him a lot better than I do. But this, this famous actor, he had this opportunity to fly into space. And to my knowledge, it was only like 11 minutes. He was only up in space for like 11 minutes, and then he descended back down. And I recently was around the TV when this was happening, and me and another individual, we were just glued to the screen as this capsule lands back upon Earth. And, and we were awaiting the, the crew to come out of this space capsule, and you see it landed in the desert, and all these cars coming to open up the, 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 the chamber, the capsule, where, which hold these people that just went up to space. And the cameras were filming as William Shatner came out of the capsule and just recorded some of his words, some of the awe, some of the reverence. And again, to my knowledge, only like 11 minutes in space. And he comes down, and I wanted to play a little clip of some of just the awe. And you can just see it. You can hear it in this man's voice. And you can see it upon just the film that was captured. But you see the awe, the awe of what he experienced looking upon earth and seeing the darkness of space. So I want to play a little clip now as you just look. This is a man who spent 11 minutes in space. How much more, how much more does this point towards our God, our creator, savior, and sustainer? Oh my God. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, the, the little things of weightlessness. But to see the blue color go, whip by And now you're staring into blackness. That's the thing. The covering of blue, this, this sheet, this blanket, this, com this comforter of blue that we have around. We think, oh, that's blue sky. And then suddenly you shoot through it all of a sudden. as so you whip off a sheet off you when you're asleep. And you're looking into blackness, into black ugliness. And you look down, and there's the blue down there. And the black up there. And it's, it's just, there is mother and earth and comfort and there's is there death i don't know what is that death is that the way death is Whoop! and it's gone Jesus. it was so moving to me this experience has been something unbelievable you see yeah you know uh weightless my stomach went up and I, ah, this is so weird but not as weird as the covering of blue. This is what I never expected. Oh, it's one thing to say, oh, the sky and the thing and the fragile thing. It's all true. But what isn't true, what, what is unknown, until you do it, is there's this pillow. There's this soft blue. Look at the beauty of that color. And it's so thin. And you're through it in an instant. It's what a... I'll, I'll, I'll think of it. We know. 
mean, the atmosphere. Is it a mile? Two no, miles? I mean, it's, I mean, it depends on how you measure because it thins out, but maybe 50 miles. But you're going yeah. 2,000 miles an hour. So you're through 50 miles of whatever the mathematics is. Fast. Was. Yeah. Really you know, fast. it's like a beat and a beat, and suddenly you're through the blue. And, then it's and you're into black. And you're into, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's mysterious and galaxies and things. But what you see is black. And what you see down there is light. And that's the difference. And not to have this, you have done something. I mean, whatever those other guys are doing, what, it, what isn't, they don't, I don't know about that. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. So, uh, I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. What's interesting to me is that even in this footage that you just saw or heard, that there's like these two different worlds. There's these other crew people and family members, and they're just laughing. They're taking photos. They just have this like huge party of just popping champagne and spraying it all over each other. And you see these two different worlds at play. You see William Shatner, who's completely like shattered at what has just happened. His whole paradigm has shifted. He's seen a perspective that he never seen before. And he said in that clip that you just listened, he said, what you have given me, it goes beyond anything else that I've ever seen or experienced on this, on this planet. But that you have him. He, he's just trying to comprehend this all. And then you have these, these, these group of people that are just going crazy. We live in such fragility. And we have a God that upholds us. Every breath is a gift. Every breath is a gift. And it's by the mercy and the grace of God that we even have breath. May today be the day that we respond to a God that is pursuing after our hearts each and everything that we go through, each and every chaos, each and every triumph or joy or success. Each and everything that we go through is a moment to respond to our creator, savior, sustainer and say, Lord, I want to know you more. And I want the knowledge of you to fill my heart in order for me to be your hands, be your feet, in order for me to be a living sacrifice and to be your temple upon a broken, dying and decaying world. We have a God that is pursuing after us relentlessly. And just like Psalms 139, David cries out and he says, oh God, you know me and you search me. You know me and you search me. Just like David said, you know and search me. Just like as Solomon rose his hands to the sky, he said, God, there's nothing that could contain you, yet you care about us, <laughs> that you want to dwell within us. And as Jesus on the cross, he fulfilled that. All of God, the word of God became flesh, dwelt among us. He lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve. And he gives us an opportunity to become reconciled with him, that all of the wrath that your sin and my sin was placed upon him, he was the justice of God for us. God himself paid the price that we couldn't pay in order for us to have a reconciled relationship with him that he desired from the beginning, that was tainted from the fall. Our God is so much greater. And also likewise, in his eyes, we are so much greater than anything we can fathom. 
But we can only understand our greatness when we surrender to our creator, savior, sustainer. And instead of seeing ourselves through our eyes that is tainted by sin, we see ourselves through the eyes of Christ, of love, justice, truth, mercy, grace, that we can't even begin to understand. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. He says, now to him who's able, God, Christ, you are able to do immeasurably more than anything we can ask or imagine. To your name be the, be the glory upon all generations, upon all the churches forever and ever. Amen. Our God's able to do immeasurably more than anything we ask or imagine, but it begins as we see ourselves through his eyes and have a holy awe and reverence and a deeper appreciation for the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God through Christ that we offer ourselves and say, Lord, wherever you want to take me, whatever you want to do with me, I am yours. I am yours. I am yours. I wanted to end today's episode with, a, with an excerpt from a testimony of a woman named Michaela Peterson, and she is the daughter of the famous lecturer, professor, psychiatrist, psychologist, Jordan Peterson, author of many, many books and and just a, a intellectual, this, this daughter of Jordan Peterson, Michaela Peterson, she recently just came public just talking about how she came face-to-face with God in her own life. And I wanted to play this clip and encourage you that no matter where you are today, if we cry out like Michaela did in this clip, and she in turn was fulfilling Jeremiah 29, 13, where God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. So I want to play this clip of Michaela as she has this Jeremiah 29, 13 moment where she just cries out, says, Lord, I want to know you. I'm searching with my heart, with all that I can, I can understand. And I'm giving it, I'm saying, God, help me see you and how God met her and revealed himself to her. And how likewise, God wants to just step into where you are today. Uh, what would, so when you said you felt you discovered God, what was that? Was it just like in a single moment, you realized that things just lined up too well, or? Uh, it was like, I had this one day where I was worrying about a, a number, of, there were like four really important, and I'm not gonna get into details That's fine. either like you did, but like I, yeah, four exactly. really, I get it. Four really important parts of my life that, and all of them were going really badly, like in ways where I was like, what am I, am I not trying hard enough? Yeah. Like, what more can I do? I can't do more to fix these four major problems. And then, um, I met somebody, I was going to check out Austin to see if I wanted to stay in Austin for the winter, which I don't, <laughs> but, um, I met somebody there and he's Christian and he was like, well, how are you managing with all these problems? And I was like, I'm not managing well. I'm really not managing well. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm working and I'm keeping it together, but I don't feel good. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to be like clinically depressed and I, yeah. and I wasn't depression. I just wasn't feeling good. And he was like, well, that's why you need God. And I said, okay, well, that's fine and dandy. You know, it's nice when somebody comes up to you and is like, well, you need God because that's how are you supposed to wrap your head around that? So I was like, well, I don't know, like, yeah, okay, maybe that sounds great, but I don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, just beg for him to reveal himself to you. Like ask him to, that's what he said, ask him mm -hmm. to reveal himself to you. And so I went home that night and I was, and I was pretty upset about like f these four major problems. And I was in bed, so I was praying, like seriously praying, like, please, 
give me some sort of sign. Please reveal himself to you. And the next day, all four problems cleared up mm. in ways that I like made sense. It was a lot like they could have cleared up, but the likelihood of all four of them clearing up randomly that sure. day was just too much. So that happened. And I also woke up with this sense of calm. I hadn't felt like the sense of calm right here. Mm -hmm. And that was enough. Mm. I was like, okay, that's good. That's good enough for me. So it was kind of like a click there, mm -hmm. which is different for me because I think I've been talking about it on the podcast a little bit and bringing people on and talking to my mom, but nothing clicked. So it was really sudden click. And then everything was great for about two weeks. So I was praying, I was reading the mm -hmm. Bible. I was like, this is fantastic. Everything's working out. And then two weeks later, I was like, just a little bit, just this one little thought that was like, well, you know, Am I being silly? There are actual like more, more logical explanations for why things turned around and that happened. And then I had two just miserable days. Mm. So it was like, it was really, it was just two miserable days. And I was like, what is happening? Why do I feel this like existential horror again? Uh, which I would differentiate from depression because I've been depressed before. This was really like existential angst. Yeah. Um, and so then I, I think I, I w went back. It's not like I'd stopped reading the Bible or stopped praying, but I was just a little bit more removed from it. Yeah. And so um, I, I went back to it and then I had the most wild dream. So I was I was talking to my parents about this and being like, I think I found God. Like, isn't that crazy? <laughs> and uh, I went to sleep that night and I woke up at 530 in the morning and I had a dream. I think I can. I think I'm allowed to talk about this stuff, but I had a dream and this loud thundering voice just yelled, do it in the dream. And I woke up at 530 in the morning and mm -hmm. was like, I think I just got yelled at by God. I think that just happened. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does it mean? So I had kind of a rough morning. I was like, I don't know what this means. Is that really what happened? Um, and, and then it occurred to me that I think what it meant was just go all in. Mm -hmm. Don't do this like 75% in. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so it's been a wild month. I'm doing really well. It's just, I'm like, I'm a little bit shocked. Yeah, I mean, that that's incredible. I would say there's a few things to watch out for. As you move through your path uh, as a Christian, just know that there are going to be many ups and downs. And you mentioned feeling a profound peace. And that's instructive because the world can give you many things, but it can't give you peace. Um, that kind of peace can only come from God. And it's important to remember, however, that while I believe firmly that you're, you're going to be happier living a Christian lifestyle because you're going to be doing the things God made you to do. Many of the holiest saints had very difficult lives and were very miserable, but there was a joy in their misery because they understood that this was for something greater. And just the fact that they were doing the will of God, the fact that it was God's will for them to be miserable was enough for them to rejoice in their own misery. Yeah, and so well, we'll see, that might take me a little bit of time to get to. It might take <laughs> me a little bit of time to get to, too. It's, it's tough. <laughs> it, it's tough. And one thing I have found uh, it, that has helped me spiritually is like, just when you're suffering or when you're miserable, thank God for letting you suffer. Thank God for showing you that misery because a, it, it shows you how much you need him, but B those closest to him will suffer the most. I mean, look at his, his only begotten son. Um, 
So we should expect suffering as Christians. And, it, you know, it's, it's easy to pray. Like when things are going well, we want to praise God. And that's good because we should. Um, and when things are going really bad, it's also important to remember that this is the author of all things. And the reason I'm going through this is because he wants it to make me better. And so I would just advise you that as, as you start to move through the spiritual life and things get really difficult, thank him, thank him for the troubles, because that means that means he's calling you to a real relationship with him. You know, I mean, like he's calling you to a relationship where, where you suffer for him, which is what love is fundamentally. Mm. And, and that's not, by the way, the way I worded that might've come off as if I was suggesting you don't have a real relationship now, that's not at all what I'm saying. But when he calls you to that kind of suffering, it's to strengthen your connection to him and your love for him. Okay. Dad, any comments? Or are you just listening? <laughs> well, there's a, I hope I've got this right. It's been a long time since I thought about this, but, and so apologies if I get it wrong, but when Christ comes back in revelation, he comes back as a judge, the justice element is emphasized in revelation. Uh, and one of the things Christ says is that I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. Mm. I could wish that you were cold or hot and neither hot nor cold. I will spew thee out of my mouth mm -hmm. and the spew, mm -hmm. it really means something like vomit. Mm. And it's, it's, it's a, an allusion to disgust. And so it's a very interesting idea is that the, the people for whom the most severe judgment is reserved yeah. aren't the committed sinners or the committed saints. They're the people in the middle who sort of play both ends against the yep. middle who won't commit. And so it's possible, Michaela, that that voice in your dream uh, this method of dream interpretation, by the way, is called amplification and, and it's a Jungian technique. And so, you know, your imagination presented this to you as something akin to a personal revelation. And so this is a amplification with a more impersonal revelation. It's don't play both ends against the middle, right? Commit, mm. commit yeah. to what you're doing fully. And that's perhaps... Now, it isn't clear what that meant because the dream wasn't that specific. You have to work that out for yourself. Um, you know, when you're doing something halfway, well, that's not, perhaps that's not for the best. Mm -hmm. So it didn't even feel like halfway, though. It felt like 75% or 80 at that point. And I think mm -hmm. that was, that wasn't good. It was like 100 or nothing. Exactly. That's what that felt like. You know, Christ didn't 80% die on the cross for you, you know, he went and did it and we, we have to love him. He, he did not hedge his bets with us. I mean, he loves us so radically that he gave his life up on the cross. He died on the cross for us and for us to see that and respond by saying, let me hedge my bets is obviously unbelievably insulting. Lord God, help us see ourselves through your eyes. Lord, you love us, you love us, you love us. Even though we feel so small at times, God, 
we recognize we are small through our own through our own strength, through our own ability, through our own understanding. But Lord, we are so big to you, big enough that you would give your life for me, for us. Lord, you mortgaged all of heaven in order for us to know you, to have an intimate relationship with you and to experience a joy that goes so far beyond our external circumstances. Lord, this pale blue dot of a planet, the fragility of life and death that each and every day we are face to face with, the fragility of our breath and the lungs and the air that sustains us, God, the shortness of our time, that each and every second is a gift from you and you alone that we take for granted so often. Lord, you have a plan and purpose for not only this this pale blue dot that is fading away, but for the people that inhabit this pale blue dot of earth. And that includes me and those that are watching and listening to this episode right now. Lord, you have a plan and purpose for our life, but we will not fulfill that plan and purpose unless we see ourselves as the temple, the temple that you died for in order for your spirit to dwell in. Lord, help us not take this life for granted, our time, our bodies, our gifts for granted. Lord, you want to use us for your hands and your feet and your mouth. Lord, help us want to know you and make you known. And that begins through a reverence. Your word, Lord, says the fear of you is the beginning of all wisdom. That fear, that reverence, that love, provokes us to a wisdom that is found in a surrender. So Lord, I pray for those that are listening or watching this, Lord, may they be overwhelmed with a sense of your presence, your love, your peace, your provision. You have created us for a king and kingdom beyond all of this. And so Lord, help us today lay down ourselves, sacrifice, surrender, and have a, a awe and a reverence for you, God. Thank you that you see us, that you care about us, that you know us, that you love us, that we are not a lost cause. So Lord, as we give you today, use us and help us see you. Help us see you. And it's in your name we pray and we surrender. Amen. Amen. This is your world, you made it, and all of creation is breathing because you sustain it. Jesus, by a powerful word, you spoke out the earth and the heavens. So I will not worry or fret. My God is the God who will never forget All of His goodness and all of His promises He's holding my world in His hands I 
all for your fame and all for your glorious kingdom Jesus you have ordained all things to dwell in your purpose so I will not worry or fret my God is the God who will never forget all of his goodness and all of his promises he's holding my world in his hands He's holding 